Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Well, today marks the end of our untamed sermon series, where we've gotten an overview of the book of Ezekiel, using it as a sort of jumping off point to discuss important attributes of the God we worship. So first, we read about God as just judge. Israel's sin back in Ezekiel's time simply had to be dealt with. And thankfully, the same just judge would later send his son, Jesus Christ, to deal with humanity's sin once and for all on the cross. Second, we considered God's holiness and his transcendent majesty. God is utterly different from anything we can fully wrap our minds around. And knowing that makes Jesus's incarnation the fullness of God and human flesh, that much more mind-blowing. Third, we discussed God's faithfulness. He's faithful to his word, faithful to his character, and faithful to his people. And that's good news for people like us, living in a world characterized by unfaithfulness and still waiting for the risen Christ to return. And then last week, we read about God's grace in Ezekiel 16. It's admittedly a shocking and dark passage. But it serves to both establish our need for God's grace and to illuminate the beauty of God's grace. And you guessed it, Jesus is the ultimate display of that grace. Now, we've spent all this time talking about who God is because In the words of A.W. Tozer, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. My hope is that this brief time in the book of Ezekiel has expanded our horizons as we think about God. I hope it's taught us more about God as he has revealed himself to be in his word rather than just caricatures that we sometimes come up with. And I hope it's also deepened our affections for this astounding God who we have the joy and the privilege to worship and serve. But today we shift to our fifth and final attribute of God in the book of Ezekiel, and that is his sovereignty. His sovereignty. Now, we may have a tough time thinking about the word sovereignty. That usually resides in the realm of monarchies with kings and queens and castles. Meanwhile, we live in a democratic republic with elected officials. But for our purposes, God's sovereignty may be defined as his absolute rule over all his creatures and their circumstances. Another definition is God's ultimate, final, and complete authority over everything and everyone. Now, where exactly do we see God's sovereignty in Ezekiel? Why might God's sovereignty sometimes be a touchy subject? And what does God's sovereignty, practically speaking, mean for us as followers of Jesus? For that, let's open up to Ezekiel chapter 21, 
feel free to use our Bibles here if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you, to be together as friends, but also to be together as far more than friends, to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, We are not just people here because we have similar interests or similar personalities or or at similar stages of life. We're here from all different backgrounds, with all different kinds of experiences and all different kinds of baggage. We're here united under the cross as siblings in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that our unity would be honoring to you. I pray that our worship would be honoring to you. I pray that we would be hospitable to those new people who come in here. I pray that when people come to church here at Prairie View, they would get just the smallest taste of what your kingdom is like, and that they would leave wanting more of that. Uh, I pray that those who come into this church on a Sunday morning, this Sunday morning or any other Sunday morning, would, would hear the gospel clearly presented and would want to know more and learn more, and that you would use us as a tool in your hands to spread your word and to advance your kingdom. And Lord, thank you for the study we've had in the book of Ezekiel, the ups and the downs, the the stuff that's been joyful to hear, the stuff that's been challenging to hear. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you say from this portion of your word one more time this morning. And again, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that we can call you our father and that you love us. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for the last time, let's remember Ezekiel's historical context. Ezekiel is a prophet sent by God to warn God's people of God's coming judgment for their sin. To get more specific, God's judgment was coming in the form of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the ransacking of the city, and the forced exile of his people to Babylon which had already happened to some of them, Ezekiel being one. But there's one very significant person in this whole situation who we haven't paid much attention to yet. And that's Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. If you're familiar with the Bible, if you watched VeggieTales or attended VBS as a kid, you may have heard that name before. Nebuchadnezzar features prominently in the book of Daniel. Daniel wrote his book shortly after the book of Ezekiel, as he too was one of those exiles. When Nebuchadnezzar had some bad dreams, this young man, Daniel, with God's help, interpreted those dreams. Nebuchadnezzar is also known for setting up a massive image of himself and demanding that people worship it. And when people didn't, he's infamous for throwing them into a fiery furnace. Specifically, three men who live to tell the tale. And while his name is not specifically stated in the book of Ezekiel, Nebuchadnezzar does make an appearance. That comes along in chapter 21, verse 18. The word of the Lord came to me again. 
As for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. That's Nebuchadnezzar. Both of them shall come from the same land. And make a signpost. Make it at the head of the way to a city. Mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah and to Jerusalem the fortified. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He consults the teraphim. He looks at the liver. And to his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem, to set battering rams, to open the mouth with murder, to lift up the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up mounds, to build siege towers. But to them, talking about the inhabitants of Jerusalem, God's people, it will seem like a false divination. They have sworn solemn oaths, but he brings their guilt to remembrance that they may be taken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your guilt to be remembered in that your transgressions are uncovered so that in all your deeds, your sins appear because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand and you, O profane, wicked one. Prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment, thus says the Lord. Remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, ruin, ruin I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs. And I will give it to him. So as Nebuchadnezzar and his army approach Jerusalem, he comes to a crossroads, a fork in the road, and he must decide which way to go. So he seeks guidance from his gods. Divination was a way of interpreting signs or omens to make a decision or even to try to foretell the future. It was practiced as a way of discerning, and to an extent maybe even manipulating, what your gods would do. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, he plays with arrows. He speaks to some statues. He lays out and examines some animal guts, looking for some kind of answer, some kind of sign about where he should go and what he should do next. But what Nebuchadnezzar doesn't realize is that his gods are not in control. His gods are not sovereign. Only the one true God can make that claim. On top of that, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't recognize that he isn't acting on his own. He is a tool in God's hand to punish the Israelites for their sin. At the end of that passage, God even says that he will give judgment. He's giving judgment to Nebuchadnezzar. The point is that God is the real actor here. Not Nebuchadnezzar's so-called gods, and not even Nebuchadnezzar himself. He 
he may be the sword of God's judgment, the means, the agent of God's judgment, but God is the one wielding it. That's because God alone is sovereign. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians would do exactly what Ezekiel had warned. They destroyed the temple, they ransacked Jerusalem, and they exiled God's people. And while this was a horrible event, know this. It was not an accident. God is the sovereign king over all of it. There's a unique title for God that features throughout the book of Ezekiel. You may have seen it a few times. You see it in verses 24 and 26 of what we read this morning. And that title is Lord God. L, capitalized, O-R-D, lowercase, and then God, all capitalized, Lord God. Now, there are a lot of different titles for God in the Bible, but this one stresses his sovereignty and his power. That title is used over 250 times in the Old Testament prophets, but almost 80% of them are in the book of Ezekiel. The point is that Ezekiel hammers home God's sovereignty. Another famous Old Testament passage about God's sovereignty is Proverbs 16, verse 33. We read about how Nebuchadnezzar consulted some arrows and talked to some statues and examined some animal guts to figure out what decision he should make. Well, the Israelites were known for casting lots. It involved throwing rocks. It was like the ancient version of drawing straws. Well, we read in Proverbs 16:33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign. But before we move ahead, one more word about King Nebuchadnezzar. Later in the book of Daniel, After Daniel interpreted his dreams and after the massive image of himself and after the fiery furnace incident, which I'm sure was just water under the bridge, Nebuchadnezzar gets a little too big for his britches at one point. One day he's walking on his roof, admiring all of his accomplishments, and he says in Daniel 4 verse 30, Is this not great Babylon? which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar apparently forgot or didn't recognize that he wouldn't be where he was without God's power. So as a result of Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance, God strikes him down, not with death, but with humiliation. The glorious king of Babylon loses his mind, goes out into the wilderness, and lives like a wild animal. Now, eventually, he's humbled and restored by God, and Nebuchadnezzar, of all people, ends up making a powerful statement about God's sovereignty. 
We see it in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is sovereign. You know, you simply can't avoid that conclusion when you read the Bible. From Joseph's series of misfortunes in the book of Genesis to Moses' unlikely survival as a baby because everything fell in the right place at the right time. To Job's sufferings that looked senseless but really weren't. To the Jews' seemingly lucky rescue by a young woman named Esther. To Jonah's all-too-coincidental bad break of getting thrown into the sea. The point is that you simply can't get around the examples of God exercising power and dominion over the events and the people of our world from big things to small things. It's all over scripture. He is the sovereign king. And that shouldn't surprise us. We read in Ezekiel chapter 1 that God sits on a throne. So with all that in mind, it's hard to disagree with the definitions of sovereignty that we mentioned earlier. God exercises absolute rule over all his creatures and their circumstances. He alone has ultimate, final, and complete authority over everything and everyone. Now, lest we think God's sovereignty is only present in Ezekiel or only present in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament, too. We see God orchestrating events in the story of Jesus's birth. There just happens to be a census that leads to Jesus being born in the city of David. And God sends dreams to Joseph and the wise men to warn them of Herod's plan to kill Jesus. We see Jesus orchestrating the events of his ministry, even his own death. He repeatedly talks about scripture being fulfilled and seals his own fate on the cross. The apostles even understand the sinful actions of people like Herod and Pilate to be a part of God's sovereign plan. We read in Acts chapter 4, verse 24. This is the apostle speaking. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That comes from Psalm 2. The apostles are reading Psalm 2 in a new and different way in light of what happened to Jesus. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan 
had predestined to take place. The point is that none of this is an accident. Not even the cross. The sovereign king of the universe is directing affairs for his glory in ways that we see and in ways that we don't. At least not yet. But maybe my favorite personal statement of God's sovereignty in the New Testament doesn't just stress him as all-powerful king, the way we've talked about so far. It also stresses him as loving father. It comes in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the possibility of facing persecution. Verse 26, Jesus says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God knows all. He sees all. He is loving father and he is sovereign king. Now, we did mention at the beginning of this sermon that God's sovereignty can sometimes be a touchy theological subject. And that's because it doesn't come without debate. Well-meaning, scripturally faithful, godly believers of different camps can come to different understandings of how and when and to what extent God exercises this power, this authority, this sovereignty. For example, the most common wrestling matches include whether or not God has rendered sinners truly independently capable of choosing him on our own or whether God himself must be directly involved in that decision. Christians on both sides disagree. Another example might be how we understand the relationship between God's sovereignty over human actions and our responsibility for our actions. If God is sovereign, then why should I be held accountable for what I do? That's one example. Third, there's the difficult question of God's sovereignty in cases of immense suffering and evil. Is God sovereign even when something horrible, unexplainable, seemingly senseless happens? Those are the questions. Now, we can't answer all of them in one sermon. We can't give all the proper nuances and explanations and arguments, though I'd be happy to give arguments later if you'd like. I'm relatively good at that. But for now, I'll simply say this. We as believers, we as readers of the Bible, have to learn to be comfortable with a real tension in Scripture. A good example is Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. God determines that he's going to free his people from slavery in Egypt. 
And Moses goes and negotiates with Pharaoh. And sometimes Pharaoh is willing to play ball. And other times Pharaoh is like talking to a brick wall. We read in those chapters that sometimes God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Which one is it? There's a real tension there. Are we responsible for what happens in our world? Yes. Is God sovereign over what happens in our world? Yes. There's a real tension there that we simply have to get comfortable with. But now, practically speaking, what does God's sovereignty mean for us? Well, first, it ought to give us a sense of confidence. God is on his throne at all times. God doesn't fall asleep at the wheel. He doesn't accidentally spill coffee on the control board. And our circumstances do not change God's sovereignty. Wars, pandemics, job losses, diagnoses, through it all, we can be confident that even then, God is sovereign. There's a great statement of faith in the sovereign God in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Nothing catches God by surprise. Good or bad, bull markets or bear markets, nothing catches God by surprise. Because he's sovereign. Second, God's sovereignty ought to give us comfort. You know, Ezekiel lived in a time of really bad kings. And sometimes we feel that way too, on both sides of the aisle. Though Second Kings tells us that, yes, things could be worse. But we can find comfort in knowing that God, the good king, the true king, is still ultimately in charge. And this true, good, and sovereign king is also our loving father who knows how many hairs are on our heads. And third, God's sovereignty ought to humble us. I mean, let's be honest. I can't even tell you what I'm going to have for lunch today. I can't guarantee that I'm going to make it out of this building alive. The point is that we are more fragile, more limited, more mortal than we usually recognize. But God is king over all. He knows all and he sees all. And that's good because we sure don't. And that ought to humble us. Finally, God's sovereignty ought to give us hope. Late in the book of Ezekiel, we read about the Israelites' future restoration. That though things were bad, they wouldn't be bad forever. 
the people would eventually return home, Jerusalem would be repopulated, and the temple would be rebuilt. It was this great promise. But we have an even better promise of restoration as followers of Jesus. We have the promise of Christ's return. The promise of resurrection from the dead. The promise of eternal life with him in a new heaven and a new earth. Because God is sovereign, our hope in Christ, our hope in his cross, our hope in his empty tomb, our hope in his future return, none of it is in vain. In Romans eight twenty eight, the Apostle Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That verse stresses God's sovereignty. And that verse sometimes gets criticized. It's true that that verse can be quoted thoughtlessly. It can be quoted in bad timing. When a fellow believer comes to you and is struggling or suffering, maybe don't turn to Romans 8:28 immediately. Maybe listen and weep with them and hear them out. But it's still a wonderful promise, Romans 8.28. We shouldn't throw it out entirely just because it's been misused by some. It's a necessary reminder that God is sovereign and that he works all things together for good for us in the end. It's hard to trust in God's sovereignty when things don't look very good. When things go south like they did in the book of Ezekiel. But that's when you need to remember most that God is king. That's when you need to remember most that God is your father. That's when you need to remember most the person and work of Jesus. God is in charge. And that's good news. To some extent, even Nebuchadnezzar could recognize that that is good news. So I pray that we would recognize it, too. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help us not just believe your word, Hold doctrines like your grace or your faithfulness or your justice or your holiness or your sovereignty. Not just hold these doctrines or these attributes in our heads as things that we believe, but Lord, teach us to trust you on the ground. Ultimately, that's where the rubber hits the road is not just saying that we believe in your sovereignty, not just saying that we know about your sovereignty, not just being able to rattle off Bible verses that argue in favor of your sovereignty, but rather to actually trust you when things go bad, to actually believe that you are in control when everything seems to be spiraling out of control. Lord, help us trust you through thick and thin, through ups and downs, through good and bad. Help us really believe that you are the sovereign king over our circumstances And that you are our good and loving Father. Help us remember that around the clock. 
And Lord, I pray that we would give you the worship and the obedience that you deserve, that you call us to, that you enable us to give you. Help us live as your people. Help us walk by faith, not by sight. Help us live by faith. And Lord, help us trust you. Again, we praise you, we worship you, we glorify you. And I pray that these past five weeks of just considering who you are through the lens of the book of Ezekiel, but taking it further and seeing it elsewhere in scripture and seeing how it might apply to our lives, I pray it's been helpful to us. And I pray that you would grow us and shape us and form us in holiness through this time that we've had together in this portion of your word. Again, Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus, that we can call you our father. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who lives within us. Thank you that we can pray to you the way we do now and the way we do at any other time of the week, that you invite us into your presence with confidence. Again, we love you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name.